we just sang about how I give my life to honor you, and I have a question to ask of us in relation to that statement. Does the workplace really matter to God? I mean, does the workplace really have any relevance? Um, Does it have any relevance to my relationship with God? Does it have any relevance to, frankly, even uh, my participation in being part of a local church? Does the workplace have any kind of relevance to God in real life? I'd like for you to open your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, it's towards the end of the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible with you, we've got some people coming around with a Bible that'd love to have you borrow. Um, Titus chapter 2, and we've been uh, studying through this chapter, and we've actually gotten through the first six verses of Titus chapter 2, and we've got to remember Titus chapter 2 is so much about just uh, God's family living out the Christian life, and we're going to take a look here on its relevance in the workplace so let me pick up actually in verse 1, read through verse 6, which is what we've studied, but let's uh, kind of get the flow of things. Chapter 2, verse 1, but as for you, which Paul is writing to Titus, but as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And here's the doctrine, Titus, here to teach. We get into the generations like we've covered the last couple weeks. Older men, the empty nesters and senior men, Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, and love and in steadfastness. I mean, that is so the letter to Titus. It's just these short little, almost like the, the, the Boy Scout code. You know, a scout is trustworthy, whatever that is, I forgot. But that's what it was. And so it keeps on going. Now empty nester men, or women and senior women, older women likewise are to be reverent behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good. And so train the young women, young women, here you go, young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, Titus, older men, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. That's what we've covered so far. Now, one of the things about this is we could actually walk away from what we've just read with uh, kind of a view that the Christian life could just be very individualistic. In other words, it's kind of like this. Listen, there's all this list of these things that you and I are supposed to have as characteristics of our life, kind of depending upon our age, if you will, and and things that are supposed to be about our life. And we could walk away from that and just look at it and go, you know what? It doesn't go beyond me. In in other words, it's about me and Jesus, and that's pretty much it. Listen, one of the things I want to make sure we understand, God has never intended for the follower of Christ to live in his or her own little cubbyhole Christian world. Never, never, ever has that been the picture of what it's supposed to be. That I'm there with Jesus, my boyfriend, you know, and it's just me and him, just me and God, and that's about it. I just want to say, if that's your view of what the Christian life is about, what following Christ is about, uh, lovingly, I just want to say that's the wrong view of what it's about. 
Now, I understand we're all different. I understand people are more social. You're like, I would never want to get up and do what you do. I'm, I'm kind of a social guy, and yeah, others aren't. I understand that, Doug, I'm more of a loner. You know, I'll just work on my character qualities, listen to chapter 2, and be God's kind of man, God's kind of woman. Listen, that is so not God's plan for you. It's not about personality, but it is about a plan that God has put in place. And God has intended for his children to live it, to show it, so that others can see it. And one of the best, if not the best places for that to take place is in your and my workplace. I mean, what a better place outside of the home is there for you and I to be able to show people and live the things that we say that we're about. So, does the workplace matter to God? Absolutely, it does. It matters a lot. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to Titus chapter 2 in these coming verses, because I think these following verses actually talk about how uh, your work matters and my work matters. So here's what we have. We have verses 7 and 8. We have four expectations of the ministry leader in the marketplace. In other words, I'm up first, okay? Not like because I'm first, but I get to be up first, Yahoo. So I get to talk about me and the expectations God has to, on me before you, and you hold me accountable. And then after that, there's five expectations on you in the marketplace. So let's go. And here's how I want to start this. Here's we got item number one. Let's click item number one. Pastor Doug in his marketplace. That was a personal picture of me taken this week. Pastor Doug in his marketplace. Now, this could be Pastor Eric. This could be Pastor Nick. This could be a ministry leader in the marketplace. But I want to be really personal. You know, like we can just talk about God, talk about the Bible, talk about stuff, and leave it in fuzzy world out there for people. But let's get personal. So this is about Pastor Doug and his marketplace. So before we go any further, the next uh, section down, as you see on your notes, this is about you. So what I want for you to do there is I want for in that blank, I want for you to put your name. Okay? Go ahead and put your name. Let's go to the next, uh, hit the next click. So your name in his or her marketplace, we're going to get there. All right? So first, here we go with Pastor Doug, if you will, in this setting, in the marketplace. Let's pick up in verse 6. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Verse 7, show yourself in all respects to be. I want to hold there. I want to set the idea of understanding who this is talking about. Paul is writing to Titus. He's telling about older men, older women, younger women, younger men. Now, Titus is right around the age of 40. I'm 48, so I'm actually in the older age category, but uh, for all realistic purposes, because I'm an empty nester. But here in the flow of the text is Paul is now shifting over to talk about young men, talking about Titus. It's a perfect shift, because Titus is a younger man. And part of this just just flows, I have to point out, is is he's saying, listen, Titus, you need to teach the younger men to be self-controlled. Oh, and by the way, Titus, there's some things you need to be as a ministry leader. And by the way, do you notice here it says, uh, in here, it says, show yourself. If someone is going to show themselves, that means that they have to be out there. They can't be off in their office the whole time. I'm just going to tell you, a ministry leader cannot be in his office the whole time of his life. He's got to be with people. I don't know about you and your church experience in the past. I don't know if you've ever had the chance to kind of get to know your pastor or pastors. But I just want to tell you, one of the things over my experience when I was in business for 20 years as a lay person was so often was, was like, I don't even know who this guy is. 
And there's a part of that that as the church gets larger, just becomes a reality of that. But then as you have others around, other ministry leaders, key lay leaders and key pastoral staff, part of the thing is, is the word to be with people, to be among the people, because you can't show something in a closet. Okay, you're the only one who sees it. It's to show yourself. And notice it says, show yourself to be something. And it's to be in all respects. It's not just here and there. It's not compartmentalized, but all the time. So I'm supposed to be showing myself all the time. Whew. I had to tell you, sometimes that's a load. And so there's a balance to that. I understand that. I don't live in a glass house, but I do live in a glass house in all reality. So here's the first one. What's the first thing it says? You tell me. What's the first thing I'm supposed to be? Hello. What's the first thing I'm supposed to be? Okay, a model of good works, an example of good works. I'm supposed to be a model. <laughs> yeah, that's what you want. Uh, yeah. Okay, I'm to be a model. The word here, it's really important. The word here doesn't have as much when we hear model. It really does fit more with that idea of an example. The word here has implications carrying along with it, this idea of making an impression. In other words, it was used in reference to to uh, crafts of the day to where an instrument was being used to make an impression. So for me, for the ministry leader, life is my instrument. Life is my instrument, and I'm supposed to be making an impact upon other people. So if you will, I'm to be a tattoo artist. I'm to be a tattoo artist of good works. I'm supposed to. I'm being held at a higher place to where the fact of the matter is, is part of my responsibility before the Lord, part of us as pastors and key leaders here at this church, is we're to be a model out there. We're to be the kind of people out there that are setting an example. I mean, do you not get irritated as all get out when people get up and talk about God, talk about uh, morality, and then they're off in their own little world living something different? What do we call that? A hypocrite. Listen, Titus, you need to be a model of good works. You need to be a tattoo artist of good works. Why? Because if he's going to teach, teach people to do stuff, he's got to do it. So first, I'm to be a model of good works. Let's keep on reading. Titus, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching. Now, the next three things that are talked about are talking about in reference to teaching. So much of my marketplace, I mean, just in all reality... Uh, so much of my part marketplace has to do with a marketplace of teaching. I mean, you see me here pretty much every Sunday, but it's not just public. It's also in private and meeting with people or other things. But so much of my job contains this idea of teaching. So the next three things are in relation to teaching. So what is expected of me in my marketplace? One, be a model of good works. Two, to have teaching that shows integrity with God's truth. See the next thing there? It says, in all respects, be a model of good works, and you're teaching Show integrity. That is teaching with a great reverence for the source. It's not about my ideas. This is not about my philosophies. This isn't about my preferences. I'm not to be bending scripture, using scripture, excusing scripture, manipulating scripture. Listen, the fact is, is to be someone that is has integrity to God's truth, it's about the text. My job, in this, especially in this kind of form in so much of my life, is bringing God's word into the reality of things and doing so with integrity. And that requires integrity in preparation just for Sundays. 
uh, I just tell you transparent. I don't mean this in any kind of bragging way or whatever. I'm just a real guy, normal guy, and I want for you to know and keep me accountable. I've set aside 20 to 25 hours a week preparing for Sundays. You go, maybe you need to spend 30. Maybe so. Uh, but I'm just going to tell you, I do that, and that's important. I've got to do that. I've been involved in ministry where so oftentimes the time that I spend, in essence, the person doing what I'm doing, ends up with things in life getting so pushed out that they spend four, five, six hours. I'm just going to tell you, I can't do that. I'm not smart enough. I've got to spend the time. I spent 20 to 25 hours putting things together in my week because I view this as critically important, and that helps me in being integrity, having integrity with the truth. I've got to have integrity in the delivery of it. In other words, like I'm talking about bringing the text, not Doug. Listen, this is so not about me. Preaching is about bringing God's truth through personality. Yes, a person brings it. There is a messenger. And you go from church to church. I preach differently than others preach differently. There's a lot of personality that takes place, but it's not about me. And you hold me accountable to make sure that's the case. Because I'm going to tell you, having gone from the lay world into full-time ministry, it is so easy to become just drugged by the attention as I get out there and meet more and more pastors. I don't want to be like that. I've got to be integrity of the truth by calling for application of God's word. Listen, God's word demands action. It's not just information. I've also, as I've kind of alluded to, I've got to be integrity with God's truth by my response to it. I've got to live it. And I've got to be humble with it. This isn't about me. This is about God's word and me growing and us growing together. So second, I need to be someone, as the scripture says, Titus, be someone in teaching, show integrity. Uh, Then third, someone who's in your teaching shows a seriousness with God's truths. These somewhat flow together, but it talks about dignity. Now, dignity, not like an upright boring. You know, dignity is like, you know, what's the guy on Gilligan's Island? Yeah. Wait, that guy, you know, you don't want to be like, like, what's with that nose in the air kind of stuff. No, listen, this is serious about things, but not boring and not uh, uh, irreverent to what's going on. I'm charged to teach as one who realizes the seriousness of my duty. Folks, this is about heaven and hell. Folks, this is about eternity. This isn't about cutesy little cuddly, you know, Barney world with Jesus. This is real stuff, and I have to be someone who's serious about it in that kind of depth. It's not my hobby. This is about the thing, God's word. Fourth, teaching that shows accuracy with God's truth. He says here, hey, Titus, you also need in your teaching show sound speech that cannot be condemned. It has the idea of of speech that's healthy, balanced, ordered, accurate teaching. Now, what the Bible says is exactly what I'm seeking to bring to us, and I need to handle it with accuracy. Why do I have to be about these four things? Why does a ministry leader have to be about these four things? Look at the end of verse 8, Paul tells us. See the so that? Every time you see a so that in the Bible, your ears got to really perk up because what was just said has implications. Here's the implications. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Uh, part of this is, is in the ministry world, uh, listen, expect opposition. 
when you speak truth, when you model good works, expect opposition. And by the way, in the culture of the day, if you remember in chapter 1, verse 12, there were liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. That was the culture of the day. And so basically Paul is saying, listen, Titus, expect opposition. It's going to come. And they're going to accuse you. But listen, here's the deal. Titus, when you're a ministry leader that lives good works and lives with integrity and seriousness and accuracy with God's word, truth and time will win. It will win. And truth and time will win. And untruth get shamed. Not in a mean, harsh way. But the fact is, is there's so much power when God's people are living it out and showing it out. Untruth gets shamed over time. Well, that's four expectations of me. Good works, integrity with God's truth, seriousness with God's truth, accuracy with God's truth. Now it's your turn. You ready? All right, let's roll. Here we go. For you, five things for you. You and your marketplace. Let's read the text and then I'm going to cover some items. Let's pick up in verse 9. Slaves. What? <laughs> we'll come back to that. Uh, slaves are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Let me fit this slaves thing, okay? Uh, The context. The Roman Empire had structured itself where bond slavery was a part of the labor system. I'm not saying it's good. I'm just saying that was the culture of the day. Uh, Many were captured from war and put in bond slaves. I remember when Karen and I years ago were over in Rome, and they were talking about the Colosseum, and there were 20,000 slaves that were used in building the Colosseum. It was a part of their culture. These are people that were owned, and many of them were abused. They had a variety of responsibilities. Some of them even were running households and farms and businesses. Again, you think of Joseph. In Genesis, Joseph was a bond slave and yet put in some serious authority. They were allowed to marry. They were allowed to have children. Sometimes they were even given a parcel of land, not all the time and maybe more of a rarity than a normal. But that was the thing. And here's one of the things I want to make clarify here. Paul is not raising a social issue. In other words, Paul is not raising a social issue to say, listen, bond slavery is out there and we need to rise up and attack the system. Listen, the answers to people's problems in life is not social revival. It's not political revival. I'm not saying don't get involved. Do get involved. But the answer is not politics. The answer is not economics. The answer is not social issues. The answer is a spiritual issue. And so Paul here, as he's talking about it, this is not a treatise to go against the social thing of the day. But the emphasis here is to be about discussing not what a person deserves, but to teach the Christ follower to serve their human master fully and faithfully, even if you're a slave. Listen, for us in our culture, this should just rock our thinking of how we view life. This wasn't about changing the social realities, but this was about even if you are a bond slave and owned by another person and you come to know Christ as your Savior, you are to be living in a way that reflects the transforming power of God in your life. 
even as a slave. Have you ever thought about that? What if all of a sudden our country was totally overtaken and we were slaves? How would that impact your thinking about walking with Christ? Sometimes I almost think we need it because we have this idea that Jesus is about making me happy. And that's not the goal. The goal of life with Christ is to please the Lord. And even if I'm a slave, I can do that. And so as Paul is addressing the very segments of the marketplace, the older men, the older women, the younger women, the the younger men, the, the ministry leader, as well as just the slave still, you are to be about pleasing God. And five things that he tells them that they're supposed to be first, yielded to your employer. Now, how do I make this bridge between slave and employer? Because listen, friends, if a slave is to be living these characteristics in life, how much more should a Christ follower that lives in a free market economy? That's the bridge jump here. Not condoning slavery, but I am condoning in this passage that, listen, if slaves are called to live like this for their master, how much more should you be living like this as an employee? Yielded to your employer. See what the text says there. A slaves are to be submissive to their own masters. By the way, and how much? In everything. Now let's hit this. Uh, submission. We talked about this last week, and you can go back and listen to that if you weren't here. It's about placing oneself under. The, uh, the emphasis on it is the person putting themselves in this. I subject myself into this role. I put myself there. It's the, I realize my boss, a kid's my teacher, my authority. I realize my boss, my teacher, is a God-given authority. Therefore, because it's a God-given authority, I submit myself to them. Not because they're great, but because God has placed them there. And in everything, it's not conditional, it's not optional, it's a given. Now, wait a second. You're probably still, you might be still caught up on the, Doug, wait a second. My boss is a God-given thing? Like, you obviously do not know my boss. It doesn't matter. Because God is in control of the kings like he is in control of the rivers. God is sovereign. He is in control of all things. God allows things to take place. Listen, God could have give you a different boss, but he hasn't. The boss you have is the boss you have. You got to take this in the context of a bond slave. I don't like my owner, so you live this way anyway. I mean, this just rocks our world in how we think. So does God work through my boss? Does God work through my teacher? Well, let's ask, let's ask Moses. Moses, did God work through Pharaoh? Remember through that series? Absolutely, God worked through Pharaoh. Someone who hated God. And God worked through him. Moses had to learn some of that. What about David with Saul? King David with Saul. Here David, as a young man, is anointed to become the coming king of Israel. And there he is, years later, playing his harp in the castle, if you will, but playing it for Saul. He's still the king. Can you imagine being David the man? If I'm so David, I'm playing a song. Here's what I'm singing. You're going down. 
and I'm coming in. You know, I mean, it's that kind of an idea. David knew he was going to be there, but David lived a life where God was working and he was allowing God to do the timing. Yes, he's going to become the king. Yes, he's going to take the place. But listen, God is the one who's in charge here. I think of Daniel, a teen taken in slavery over to Babylon. And we don't see Daniel sitting around going, I don't like my boss. Daniel grew up until older, older years of life as a man used by God in immense ways. I just want to say, are you yielded to your boss? Seriously. Are you? Do you have the mindset that when I look at my boss, I don't see my boss or I don't see my employer. I see through them and I see a God who is intricately involved in all things beyond that. I'm not looking at them going, they deserve it. You may be way way more qualified. doesn't matter. Irrelevant. The fact is is that there's a characteristic that here in this this reality is, as Paul's talking to Titus, listen, Titus, teach the bond slaves to yield to their employees. Man, doesn't that just like blow you out when you think about that? But that's what God wants us to be doing. Second, excellence for your employer. Text says they are to be well-pleasing. This term is mostly used in the New Testament of being acceptable to God. As we're to be well-pleasing to God, so you're to be well-pleasing to your employer. In other words, this. Jesus Christ is pleased when you are pleasing your boss. Well, I don't have to because my boss is not a follower of Christ. (laughs) So? Even more reason to. Now, let me add another one. I don't have to because my boss is a follower of Christ. I tell you, I was in business for 20 years, owned a company, and in that business over the 20 years, I'm going to tell you some of the saddest, weakest employees, not saddest, but I'll say weakest employees I had were Christians. And the reason for that was this mindset of coming in and, oh, find out that you're a follower of Christ and your business. And, and so that, and we're, kind of, we're like in the club together. So, you know, I can come a little bit later and chill out a little bit more, you know, because we're like Christians together. And I'm like, dude, I've hired you. Don't give me this Christian stuff. Live it. Oh, it used to be so irritating and embarrassing and frustrating when I've seen Christians that are not stepping up to the plate with a passion to live like workers for Christ. Work for advancements. Work hard. That's great. Work because you love the skills. But the highest purpose is this is about God. Third, respectful of your employer. The term here says not argumentative. It's not a rebellious. You're not a rebellious, obstinate, talk-back employee. By the way, in public and in private. Listen, understand when disappointment and unfair treatment happens. Understand that. But there's still no reason for disrespect. Why? Because God has allowed this person in your life for things that you and I don't even know about. And so it's about serving Christ first. Listen, stand for your convictions in sin. We're assuming that. When sin things come up, no, you stand for truth. But listen, when you've had the time to properly and rightly be able to give your input on the situation, give it. But then if they don't do it your way, go with it. 
First uh, Samuel twenty six nine. David is in a position to king to kill King Saul. He's right there. This is after the harp playing. Saul becomes a wicked, wicked man. And David literally has to run away because Saul is trying to kill David. The guy who was playing the harp, now he's trying to kill his musician. And so David's away from it. And David is in a place at a time where he's right there. He's able to kill Saul. Remember, he knows he's supposed to be king. Man, this is the time to just, God has put him in my hand. And listen to what David says. Don't kill him, referring to Saul. For who can remain innocent after attacking the Lord's anointed one? Lord forbid that I should kill the one he has anointed. Listen, Saul was acting with immense wickedness. And yet David looks at the situation, he's like, listen, God in his sovereignty has put him in that place, even a wicked man behaving like that right now. Listen, I'm not saying that I fall into sin or I do his sin, but in this whole thing, I am not going to be the one that takes God's plan out because I don't know what God is doing behind the scenes. And by the way, last time I remember it, God knows a whole lot more than you and I. And God's plans are far bigger than your and mine. And so David in the setting is respectful of God's given authority. Fourth, honesty with your employer. The term is not pilfering, not embezzling, not misappropriating. Remember, many of the bond slaves were, had authority over houses and, and businesses. And you know what? I mean, here they are owned. I mean, how like terrible is that? How wrong is that? You know, and here I am, a slave owned by this person. This isn't right. I don't think God would approve of this thing. And so, you know what? My, my, my home and my family is hungry, so I'm just going to grab some extra chicken nuggets out of the freezer. Because the situation I'm in is not fair. Not only that, but when I turn my receipts in, I'm going to pad the expense account a little bit more for my boss. Because, I mean, come on, I put in some extra time and somehow I got to get reimbursed for these things. I just take a couple post-it note stacks. It's just a few company goods. They don't use it anyway. I just want to say, uh uh-uh. No. That's not God's plan. Uh, Number five, loyalty before your employer. It says showing all good faith, reliable, faithfully doing what is expected consistently. It's about showing, living, demonstrating, evidencing loyalty. Again with David. uh, 1 Samuel 14, King Saul is sitting around with 600 men, and actually his son Jonathan, uh, King Saul's son Jonathan, which was a good guy, David's best buddy. And King Saul's a wicked man. He's scared to death. There's 600 of his men who are sitting outside of a Philistine outpost, and there he is, scared to death. I mean, the king of God's nation, of God's people, scared to death of this small Philistine outpost. Jonathan uh, just gets disgusted by the whole situation. And he says, you know what, perhaps, by the way, in the text, I love it. He says, perhaps God will honor someone who's going to stand up for him. Perhaps, which could mean like I could die as well. And so Jonathan goes and he talks to his arm bearer his right-hand man, and he says, hey, listen, how about you and I? Let's go take the outpost of Philistine men on because this is ridiculous. And there the sword bearer says this, Jonathan, go ahead. I'm with you heart and soul. He was potentially walking to his death. 
And yet what a loyalty. Obviously, Jonathan was the kind of man that was easy to follow. I'm not saying to walk to death with your boss. But I am saying this, that we see in the text, showing all good faith, there's a loyalty of behind what's going on. Friends, how you doing? Are you yielded? Is excellence part of who you are in your work? Is respectfulness of your employee a reality? Or are you getting caught up in the, uh, the, the workroom chats with all the other employees complaining about what a loser place and person you're under? Is honesty going on? Is there loyalty to your employer that's proper? Why should I do this? I'm so glad you asked. Because verse 10. See there? So that? I love this. So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Listen, is your workplace important to God? Oh, so absolutely yes. Think of this. He uses this term of adorning. It's a term that's talking about decorating, uh, uh, making look just marvelous. Listen, your workplace is a place and an opportunity to be able to decorate Jesus Christ. To adorn him. We're coming up into the season that says adore him. I just want to call you today to be the kind of person in your workplace that adorns Jesus. You see your workplace not only as a place to get money, to be able to provide income for life and for family. You don't only just see work as a place where you're able to input your skills and your training into, but you look first and foremost as your workplace as one other part of the walking for Christ and worshiping Christ with our life. Your workplace is a place to adorn Jesus Christ. Is it? Just imagine the impact that you would have. And I want to tell you, many of you are having that impact. Having discussions with you about what's taking place and opportunities that have been brought up for you in ministry at your workplace and people that you know. Keep at it. But if your workplace is just a place, just you got to do it. And I understand some days it's hard to wake up. But I want to tell you, God has called us to something really big. Make Christ attractive. Show it. Live it. Display it. Be set apart. Don't be like everybody else. Because on the island of Crete, they were known as liars, wild beasts, and lazy gluttons. What a perfect setting to show the light and the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. Radical living in the workplace. Well, let me pray. God, I want to thank you for the opportunity that we have to work. Some days that's harder to say than others. And sometimes it brings struggles and trials and uh, real issues of life but i want to thank you for the opportunity to work and father i realize in this day and age in this economy we've got a lot of people who don't have work and lord i pray that they would be able to find jobs and places to be able to work first and foremost to be able to show jesus christ god i want to thank you that living with you is not just about going to church and that's it It's holistic. It's 24-7. It's everything that we do. And this world needs to see you. 
And you've given us the opportunity to show you. So this week, I pray that this church, the people here, would leave here and would adorn you at their work this week. Whether it's in their neighborhood, at their job, at school, wherever, may you be adorned for your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen.